Hi, this is Adam White from the Gray Center. Thanks for joining us. You're about to hear my conversation with Professor Frank Mannheim and Professor David Schoenbrod about a paper that Frank wrote for the Gray Center. Before we begin, just a, a little word of caution. We had some background noise on one of the microphones, and it, it buzzes up a little bit from time to time. We tried to minimize it soon as much as possible. You still might hear some in the background. I hope it doesn't take away from your enjoyment of this episode. I enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you will too. Now, on to the episode. Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the study of the administrative state. I'm Adam White. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency and the 50th anniversary of the enactment of the Clean Air Act. We know that these events and the enactment of other environmental laws in the same era had major effects on the environment and on the industries that were being regulated. But what, what impacts have they had on lawmaking itself? In a new Gray Center working paper, Professor Frank Mannheim, George Mason University's Schar School of Public Policy, contends that the Clean Air Act's framework marked a major turning point in American law itself, particularly in terms of Congress's role in our government. Professor Mannheim is our guest today. Frank, welcome. Thank you. His paper is titled Transformation of Congressional Lawmaking by the Clean Air Act of 1970 and its Effects. It's available on the Gray Center's website, along with all the other working papers discussed in this mini-series on Congress and the administrative state. And to discuss that paper, I'm pleased to be joined also by David Schoenbrod, a trustee professor of law at the New York Law School. A longtime expert in environmental regulation, He's also a leading thinker on questions of Congress's role in our constitutional government. His books include Power Without Responsibility, How Congress Abuses the People Through Delegation, and most recently, DC Confidential, Inside the Five Tricks of Washington. He's also one of the leaders of a project called Breaking the Log Jam, an environmental law for the 21st century, a joint program of the New York Law School, New York University School of Law, and NYU's Environmental Law Journal. David, welcome. Thank you. Frank, we'll begin with you. Could you give our listeners an overview of your paper? Thank you. I'd like to first make an additional note about David Schoenbrock. In 2007, he organized by far the most in-depth study of our regulatory problems in the breaking of the logjam project, and that brought together some 40 experts in environmental law and became a thousand page special report in the uh, law, law school journal before it was summarized in a book in 2012. And I might say it was praised by two former administrators of EPA and other leading environmentalists. So if that track had been followed, we might be in a very different situation today. So, I, I, Frank, I'd say I think a lot of I think a lot of things would be improved if more people would listen to David Schoenbrod. Uh, but with that, Frank, go ahead. Uh, so, let's start with a little history. From the late 19th century to 1970, the U.S. was consistently at the forefront of technology advances. For example, the Chrysler Building, when it was completed in 1930. After 20 months of construction, it was the tallest structure in the world. It's still a jewel in the New York City skyline. 
And given the complexities involved in traffic, water, sewage, electricity, it couldn't have been built without the full cooperation of city authorities. But the era of rapid infrastructural progress ended abruptly after 1970. So uh, let's trace briefly what happened. And that's my contribution is uh, to study the circumstances of the uh, framing of the uh, Clean Water Act amendments and what happened subsequently. Uh, in January 1969, an oil platform in the federal waters off Santa Barbara, California, blew out. It's mainly forgotten now, but images of oil ducks and blackened sands on the TV screens of nightly news programs created something of a national environmental crisis. Senate activists led by Senator Henry Scoop Jackson of Washington and Senator Edmund Muskie of Maine moved rapidly. The first new law was the natural environment I made a mistake in that name. Natural Environment uh, Policy Act of uh, December 31st, 1969. No, excuse me, I was right about that. National Environmental Policy Act of 1969. And EPA was created by President Nixon on December 2nd, 1970. And the Clean Air Act amendments in 1970 were signed by Nixon on December 31st, 1970. So to appreciate the transformative features of this act, we need to go back into history. The progressive uh, reform movement in the 19th century peaked in the administration of Theodore Roosevelt. Both parties then embraced the principle that not only classified federal employees should be import, appointed on the basis of merit, heads of agencies should also be appointed based on competence and ability to exercise independent leadership. So trust in federal agencies made congressional laws short because operating policy was developed by agency leaders. But the agencies did not have uh, wide jurisdiction over state and local affairs. They were mainly confined to interstate commerce. So in 1905, the act that transferred uh, forest management from the Department of Interior to the Department of Agriculture was only a half page long. But in 1969, the con uh, convention for deference to federal and state agencies was still largely observed. However, manufacturing and industry were the prime sources of environmental pollution. The framers of the Clean Air Act amendments on the Subcommittee for Air and Water Pollution feared that economic powers would influence regulators. So the Clean Air Act amendments not only expanded EPA authority nationwide, it broke all conventions in length and detailed operational procedure, was given strong teeth. From this time on, when Congress identified social societal problems, it no longer left operational policy to agencies, but took responsibility for detailed fixes. The bipartisan framers of the Clean Air Act amendments of 1970 were especially skilled 
but Congress has no inherent scientific or professional expertise. So subsequent policymaking became politicized. The environmental laws of 1970, uh, of the 70s, made rapid progress against pollution and environmental hazards, but their harsh provisions led to unexpected economic decline. The business community became antagonistic to regulations. Ronald Reagan defeated uh, President Jimmy Carter in the election of 1980. His administration's rollback of enforcement of environmental laws was met by strong congressional backlash. Reagan changed policies, but it was too late. Conflict over environmental policy widened to partisan polarization. Through the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990, congressional gridlock effectively froze the system of environmental laws in time. The Clean Air Act amendments and other 1970s laws are still regarded as bulwarks by the environmental community. However, they contain the seeds of societal conflict recognized and avoided by later European policymakers. So they the, the thought was that if environment and economics are not integrated in policy, their advocates will talk past each other and neither will be likely to achieve their goals. That's exactly what happened to the United States. Thanks, Frank. And before we turn to David, maybe I'll just ask one quick follow-up question. Um, your paper gives an account of the 1970s onward and the effect of the Clean Air Act on the economy. And, and what you just said a moment ago was that it also affects the political environment surrounding future regulation. You referred to gridlock and the challenges of bringing people together to settle related questions of, of both the environment and the economy. Do you have any thoughts going forward on what might be done to improve yeah. the situation? Uh, well, uh, let's look at some serendipitous factors that exacerbated the problem. The situation might, the laws might not have been so extreme if their fa- if the framers like uh, Edmund Muskie had not been under great pressure, among other things, by the Nixon administration. Nixon brought on board a number of tree huggers. He was a, a shrewd politician and he could see the wave of concern, public concern and environment, and he wanted to be on top of that rather than uh, following. So the second problem, which is almost ignored today, except for administrative scholars, is Jimmy Carter's revision of the Appointment procedures for the federal government. The uh, let's see, what's it called? The the civil service reforms. What that? The civil service reforms. Yes, the Civil Service Act of uh, 1978. uh, Carter was notorious in his skepticism and about the federal bureaucracy, and he wanted greater controls. So the the CSRA uh, created. Uh, uh, federal government uh, SES service uh, which could 
be flex used flexibly uh, in uh, administering government affairs, and it created 10% of those that the president could appoint as temporary administrators to serve under plum book appointees, the top, the top policymakers in the agencies. So this essentially gave, uh, ironically, it gave Ronald Reagan, who had uh, developed uh, a, a great antipathy to the regulatory regime, it gave him the tools to dramatically uh, step into agency affairs. And, uh, for example, the uh, EPA administrator, uh, Ann Gorsuch, cut enforcement uh, funds for the EPA by something like 40%. So that created tremendous backlash in Congress. And although Reagan... Uh, modified his policies, it was too late. Polarization already took place. Uh, Democrats became the party of the environment. Republicans became the party of industry. And the rest is history. Well, thanks for all that, Frank. David, I would love to hear your thoughts on all this history. Um, thanks again for reading Frank's paper. Love to hear your thoughts on, on any or all of this. Very good. I enjoyed reading Frank's paper. He makes two critically important points. Clean Air Act of 1970 fundamentally changed how we regulate. And the change has made our economy much less productive. I want to add two additional points. First, the old way of regulation was based upon a false assumption that Congress could give agencies a blank check to regulate as they thought best because their experts were insulated from politics so they could use science to determine the correct way to regulate. In fact, however, elected officials pressured agencies to go easy on contributors. And the corruption thus became, became apparent in the late 1960s through the work of Ralph Nader and political scientist Theodore Lowy. So given this, Congress was embarrassed. Muskie, uh, who wanted to be a candidate for president next coming election, felt he had to make it seem like he made the policy in Congress. The second additional point I want to make is Congress did not, in fact, make the regulatory policy itself, only pretended to do so, illustrated again by the Clean Air Act of 1970. The act ordered to promulgate limits on pollution sufficient to, quote, protect health. That order was gibberish because the legislators knew it's impossible to cut pollution enough to stop all of the adverse effects on health. So, in fact, statute left EPA with the price of to what extent to protect health. And except for new cars, the um, statute left the EPA the choice about how to allocate the cleanup burden among different industries. So basically, uh, Congress punted once again to the agency, but in a much more complex way. Now, this was great for members of Congress because they could take credit for protecting health, left EPA take the blame for the burdens needed to cut pollution. 
That's why the statute passed just about unanimously. Now, one way that Congress covered up fraud was to broadcast that EPA would in fact their help um, through uh, by forcing businesses to use the most efficient ways of cutting pollution, this new and better way. This was called technology forcing. The problem with it, however, is that the industries themselves knew much better than did the EPA official what was the best way to cut pollution and Industries are going to be stupid if they let EPA know about these ways because their reward would be paying to have to install them. That would be nuts. So technology forcing and the structure of the statute deterred the innovation needed for cleaner, more productive economy. Another way that Congress covered up the fraud was to require complex administrative procedures. This made it more expensive, more uncertain, build new plants, the new plants were built, even though they are necessary for innovation. The upshot was that our economy became less productive and a lot of jobs went overseas. So today we have a situation where Democrats are against pollution coming children and Republicans are against regulation coming jobs. Thus, polarization. David, let me ask you a question as well. Uh, given your work over the years on the environmental laws, your time, if I remember correctly, at the Natural Resources Defense Council, that's right? In the exactly. So you were, I don't know that you were present for the creation, but you were there around the time of its creation. And I'm curious for you, if you could recall when Congress enacted the original Clean Air Act in such broad terms, was it assumed that the Clean Air Act would be amended frequently? Was it sort of a first? Was the 1970 version sort of just a first version of it? I mean, we had the amendments in 77 and 90, but I'm just curious whether people expected that version of, of the, 19, the 1970 Act to be more or less the final word on things or just a, a first word on things. I think the expectation was... Oh, let me, let, let's give David a chance to answer first, Frank, and then, and then you'll go next. Um, I remember the passage of the act. I remember reading it for the first time. And I thought it was just wonderful because we were to get clean air. Because I was fooled by the tricks of Congress to thinking what they were saying was, was about was true. And so I was not thinking about amendments. And in fact, the driving force, the amendments of 77 and 1990 was that EPA was unable to meet goals that Congress it dictated it achieved. So uh, what drove the amendments was the failure of Congress to promise to carry out. And I remember um, beyond that, my offices in NRDC were a very tall uh, skyscraper. And I looked out the window, and what did I see? The Chrysler built. <laughs> Frank, I interrupted you a moment ago. What were you going to say? Yes, well, we know that the, uh, the framers there were five of them, three of them Republicans and two Democrats, uh, which was uh, uh, a big contrast with today when we have total uh, conflict between the parties. We know that uh, Howard Baker, who supplied much of the technical and scientific input into the Clean Air Act amendments, as well as the Clean Water Act later, uh, 
felt that this was a truly important milestone, and they were driven by a sense of urgency. Uh, uh, It's hard to recreate the atmosphere of that time, but we have to remember that in the 60s, the U.S. hit a a peak in productivity. In 69, we had the uh, landing of the man on the moon. So the U.S. was an incomparably uh, advantageous position technically and economically. And the framers were not concerned about environment or other matters. They said they felt quite, uh, made it quite clear that the environment was the primary concern. And I, in one of uh, David's books, he mentions that the uh, Environmental Protection Agency uh, was given a mission so important that uh, the first agency that was given a mission so important that practicalities could be ignored. In, in a study like this, Frank, there's so many things happening, you know, at any given moment in history. It's often very hard to untangle cause and effect. And so as you trace through the Clean Air Act then being followed by the, the economic consequences, obviously there were so many things happening in the 1970s. I don't need to recount all these things. There was inflation. There was the energy crisis. There were other things, things that went well into President Reagan's administration, almost all the way to to his morning in America re-election campaign in 1984. Critics are going to read your paper and say, well, the things that you're pointing to, the things that happened after the Clean Air Act, they were not the Clean Air Act's fault. They were the fault of other things. How do you go about untangling all of that? Well, uh, the important thing is to recognize that the slump that took place in 1970 was completely unanticipated. The previous two decades had seen 30% in each of the two decades, uh, 30% increase in the uh, per capita income. In the 1970s, it decreased by 6.7%. There was stagflation. There was all, there were all kinds of problems. Of course, acerbated by the Arab oil embargo and then later the Iran crisis. So, uh, uh, people in the 70s recognized, uh, leading, uh, law, law experts recognized that those laws needed correction, that they were extreme and they had driven uh, businessmen an, an exodus from uh, industry and manufacturing into uh, real estate, banking and finance, uh, marketing of overseas production, uh, law, and so forth. So the U.S. is a highly psychological place. So the the impact of those draconian laws with the equivalent of $165,000 a day fines for, for, uh, for violating air pollution standards. This, that's an equivalent in today's dollars. That, that was a tremendous hit. And you could see young entrepreneurs did not want to engage in that problem, not to mention the litigiousness that grew by Estimates of tenfold as a result of that decade. We, we've been um, talking about um, an interesting phenomenon, which is that the Republicans 
Another well, Democrat in 1970 supported the statute, but now we're in an era of polarization. So what produced change? And I think that this is what was going on is that um, everybody, both parties in Congress, thought the EPA would really be able to get a really big reduction in pollution without undue burdens on anybody. I mean, remember, this was the era where we landed a man on the moon. And so, the, and what was explicitly said in Congress, we could put a man on the moon, clean up the air on Earth. But it turned out to be more sensitive than thought. Now, that wasn't realized in part because the idea was we were going to have the experts in charge. EPA would decide who was going to cut which pollution. And they were smart people. So through central planning, we'd be able to get the job done without voters getting really upset. The idea that we could... Um, get the air a lot cleaner without great burdens on people turned out to be erroneous. And we can see that, for example, about automotive air pollution. To meet the primary ambient air quality standard, the gold standard here, in Southern California, we would have to take 80% of the cars off the road. Now, that's just never going to happen. And so, uh, Republicans in particular began to switch from we've delivered clean air to I'm against pollution killing jobs. So it was the impossibility of doing what the act promised that led to the green polarization we're living with today. You know what you just described, David, those last few lines, it, it, we were recording this in September of 2020. And it has sort of interesting echoes of the political debates right now um, surrounding uh, COVID-19, where, of course, the debate has many, many sides. But one of the sort of mainstreams of the debate is the the, the protection of health versus uh, the, the preservation of, of people's jobs and, and so on. I don't know whether the Clean Air Act, uh, maybe the Clean Air Act and the other environmental laws uh, created that that division. Uh, of political lines, but it certainly stays with us today, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, and, but the, the idea was that human health was more important than, than dollars, but we didn't really have to face that trade-off because we were going to force technology. Uh, the agency, the EPA, was going to get the industry to do what needed to do, clean up the air at a reasonable cost. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, we can certainly confirm that the Clean Air Act and its subsequent legislation were very effective in reducing pollution, but there was also a cost, and that cost was the rift in society, and that uh, the re- replacement of trust relationships between government and the private sector uh, had universal uh, ultimate impact. So, for example, when the Germans uh, developed uh, a virus tests and offered us a million and a half tests early in the game. Uh, the FDA was subject to so many procedures and regulations that they rejected that uh, that that offer. And subsequently, there were other problems with their system. And uh, people are 
are not happy with the way our total health care system has been coordinated and allowed to operate. So what I'm saying is that the initial effects of those laws were were positive and earned the gratitude of uh, many environmentalists and still do. But the consequences for societal disruption and inefficient performance is everywhere today. And I mentioned before we started the podcast that the, he- the headline in the Washington Post today was that the Purple Line, a major transit system that was first conceived in 1994, uh, was just, uh, just the contractor just dropped out because of bureaucratic uh, interference and delays and uh, two and a half years of delays. That, that system, that situation is going to be devastating to try to deal with the uh, renewable energy goals and fighting climate change. There is an interesting story along all of the, in the same era. Earlier, we referred to the Apollo missions and putting a man on the moon. And it's, this is a subject far too big for, for this podcast. It probably deserves many discussions of its own. But the, the, the sort of generational change from a, a, a government bureaucracy um, or a government that could that used its bureaucracy for the sake of energy. I don't mean the energy industry. I mean energetic government, sort of the can-do attitudes of not just the moon landing, but everything like the, the, the um, I mean, we always say Hoover Dam, but the enti- all the projects out west and the Columbia River and so on, um, the things that, that, that Roosevelt's, Franklin Roosevelt's administration championed. That sort of energetic can-do government is now when we now when we talk about government bureaucracy, it's not the government bureaucracy moving too fast; it's the government bureaucracy slowing things, slowing, slowing things down, and creating the sort of environment of of lethargy that surrounds the government. David, I, you were about to say something. Yeah, um, I was going to say that I don't think I think we tend to give clear EPA too much credit getting the air cleaner. Uh, Indor Gakwani at Cato did some work where he showed the rate at which uh, some very important pollutants were being cut uh, before 1970. And this was largely due to state and local government finding public concern about pollution. And he showed that the, the slope of change, the slope of improvement, did not change after 1970. And here's another one. Um, it's been pointed out that one of the biggest drivers of the reduction of most dangerous sorts of air pollution is making available to the public information about who's gonna, who's admitting them and where. These, what Elliot shows is that the biggest driver of cutting toxic air pollution, worst one, um, was not regulation, but the requirement that Firms who emit these things make public what they're emitting and in what quantity. That made firms worry about state and local regulation and also court lawsuits. And so, fear of that rather than EPA requirements did a lot to reduce the most toxic air pollution. Don Elliott showed that. Well, uh, I can also mention that uh, David mentioned in one of his books that. Uh, it's not true 
that the states were impotent against air, air, air pollution. They had already made a great deal of progress uh, by the 1968. And I, I particularly was deeply impressed by the difference between U.S. policy and European nations. And the Scandinavian countries in particular are characterized by a high deal degree of trust in their federal agencies, which we had at one time, uh, even if uh, they were operating uh, under, let's say, some conditions of veniality and political shenanigans higher in the, the system. So that, uh, for example, uh, in Sweden, the uh, entire environmental code is only 176 pages long, and it covers the entire uh, spectrum of application of uh, environmental policy to different jurisdictions. So if you want to build a sand and gravel pit, that's governed by the local community. If you want to uh, build uh, an electrical power plant, that would be covered probably by a state uh, entity. And then the really big stuff, let's say nuclear energy, that would be covered by the, uh, the Swedish federal court, environmental courts, which are not like our courts but are environmentally competent and can uh, uh, resolve problems rather than just declaring winners and losers. So this concept of trust in a government and an interplay with private industry and government was in play when the Chrysler building was constructed in only 20 months, uh, finished in 19. Uh, 30 and still a jewel on the New York skyline. Whereas in the Big Dig, uh, which was first designed around 1983, it didn't get federal permits until 1991. That situation permeates society today, and it's, it all came about because of events in the early 1970s. I would add to, I would add to that. What Frank just said reminds me of something I saw in the newspaper a few days ago. In one of the articles about the wildfires in California, there's a town in California called Berry Creek that was concerned that about the excessive amount of dead timber in the woods around it. And so it sought permission. Uh, it wanted to cut thin the wood. Uh, but to do that, it needed permits. And it took them two years to get permits. And a few days after they got the permit to allow the work to begin, the town got burnt down because the fire came. Two years of wasted time. I, I want to ask David a question. The sequence of investigations and books that he's written are so compelling that you would think under any normal circumstances that should have resulted in action. Legislators should have been delighted to have this body of knowledge at their disposal. So have you had significant interest by legislators? What would you say uh, was the were the prospects for doing something with all that work? Well, good you ask. Um, Richard Stewart and I, Richard Stewart and I and Katrina Wyman were the authors, leaders of the Breaking the Lockdown Project. Dick was former chairman of the Environmental Defense Fund, also assistant attorney general for the 
environment under first President Bush. Nick and I went around Capitol Hill talking about our proposals to make our environmental statute sensible. And we heard Democrats and Republicans saying, we wish what you're proposing was in the statute books, but it's not going to happen because members of Congress don't want to take responsibility. Well, that's a line that from, uh, reminds me of the line from John Hart Ely's book, not the famous book of democracy and distrust, but one of the later ones, War and Responsibility, where he talks about the delegation of power to the executive branch. And he says, it's not the executive taking power, it's Congress giving away power. And his exact line that he just reminded me of is he says, accountability is pretty frightening stuff. Um, exactly. And, and John Hart Ely inspired a lot of my uh, work. Uh, he was around New York Law School as a visitor when I was writing Power Without Responsibility. And I, uh, embraced, um, I embraced what he was talking about in terms of war in my most recent book, DC Confidential, which was in response to Congress talking about responsibility. I wanted to show that it wasn't just on regulation, but it was on war and everything else that was important. But Congress has run away from responsibility with terrible consequences. Well, thanks, David. Frank, do you have any uh, closing thoughts before we end? Well, I've been thinking about um, what the, I'm not the expert on the actual legislation and what one can do about it. That's where David has his province. But, I'm, but looking at the big picture, it's quite obvious, and I think he would agree that Congress is not going to be able to do any reforms in the foreseeable future. Any uh, real reform will have to have two components. First of all, there will have to be uh, recognition that the existing system doesn't work. If if, uh, Biden wins, for example, and um, a massive green energy uh, new deal is uh, set into motion, and it encounters unexpected obstacles. If it stalls, if the costs go out of sight, if the delays are intractable, at that point, it could be that the recognition will come about. And then I would say it's really important for external uh, bodies, uh, like uh, David's initiative, to, uh, to have in place concepts that could lead to uh, productive uh, productive reforms. And uh, again, you would need uh, some angels at the top or at the high positions in the political spectrum to make it happen. But the combination of the private sector people and hopefully uh, politicians who could rise to the level where they recognize the need for reform ideally in the top spot, would be the ticket. Well, thanks, Frank, and thanks again for joining us today. Uh, David, do you have any thoughts? Oh, thanks, thanks, Frank. David, do you have any thoughts in conclusion? I just wonder how bad things will have to be before the voters and their representatives realize that they got to take some responsibility. Well, as, as, as... Senator John McCain used to say, it's always darkest right before midnight. Um, so right before pitch black. Uh, well, again, David, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, again, the paper we've been discussing is by Professor Frank Mannheim of George Mason University's Schar School.
Its title is Transformation of Congressional Lawmaking by the Clean Air Act of 1970 and its Effects. You can find this paper and all the other papers in this mini-series on Congress on the Gray Center's website for its working papers. Again, I'm Adam White. This is Arbitrary and Capricious. Thanks for joining us. Join us again next time.